politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow patriots, to the Conservative Review podcast on this fine Tuesday, October 8th, in a time where there is no conservative vision being offered on almost any issue. So many of you are looking forward every day to this, the only independent conservative talk show where we actually analyze issues through the independent conservative lens, not tethered to any personality. And look, this is true of immigration. It's true of, of crime, foreign policy, national security, healthcare. There is no vision. Everyone's focused on the soap opera. And that's why we always say in our introduction that we give you politics without the soap opera. Now, I plan today's show around discussing Syria and Erdogan and Turkey, what Trump is doing right, what he's not doing right. Um, again, not this false dichotomy uh, surrounding personalities like we talked about yesterday, but I'd be remiss if I didn't start the show off with jailbreak before we, we uh, bring in our special guest, Colonel Dan Steiner, our in-house national security expert. I am proud to have been pretty much the only voice, the only voice in conservative media opposing the so-called First Step Act that was shoved through with no transparency, no hearings. Um, they changed the bill in the middle of the whole process, brought it up under suspension vote with no debate in the House at the end of the 2018 session when everyone was focused on the looming government shutdown. No one even knew it was in the bill. They called it prison reform, where people thought it meant like, hey, is there better food, better cots? Are you doing something about the prison rape epidemic or something like that? But no, it was an early release bill targeting the federal prison population, which by definition consists of the worst of the worst in the state system that were targeted by federal prosecutors because they knew they needed to get off the streets, often getting them on racketeering and drug charges, but usually not only are, there, are they killing so many people with the most lethal drugs ever, but they are usually big gang leaders who are responsible for so much murder and robbery and other things. And the drug sentencing is what was used to take them off the streets. There were multiple avenues for leniency already built in the system. After the Booker court decision in 2005, the sentencing wasn't even mandatory. There were just guidelines. And anyway... It was all built on a lie. He says low level. No one gets released early. It's low level offenders. And indeed, it releases thousands upon th thousands of the most violent high level offenders who often pled down or sometimes didn't even plead down um, onto the streets. Well, lo and behold, we warned at the time that there would be multiple people killed as a result of this, but you'll never find out about it. Just like there's heinous murders and you never find out that they're committed by illegal aliens that could have and should have been removed. Just like every day we report on heinous murders like we did yesterday, um, and it turns out there's even worse circumstances for the Santos guy that beat four homeless men to death in Chinatown, New York. Turns out um, he was sprung from jail on bail by this nonprofit organization. He was arrested for very violent incidents, barely served a day in jail, Every day, there's so many people like this, yet 
everyone from Mike Lee to Rand Paul and Ted Cruz got roped into it. The Heritage Foundation, every conservative became to the left of Michael Dukakis. We were the only ones left standing. We are the only organization that in our legislative scorecard, we scored against this immoral, horrible bill. And lo and behold, the Providence Journal reports that guess what? A man named uh, Joel Francisco, who was known as an evil, terrible person by local cops in the 90s, early 2000s, um, terrorizing the area. He was a Latin Kings gang member. We talked about the Latin Kings gang in the lead up and the debate over the First Step Act. We said many of the people arrested for drug charges are actually people like that. This guy was a gang leader and he was horrible, responsible for so much murder and mayhem. But ultimately, what did they lock him up on? Drug charges. And under our sentencing, you had the three strikes and you're out that if it's three drug trafficking charges, life in prison. Okay, the third time. Again, it's not ironclad. Not everyone gets that. There's many escape valves. It's not mandatory. But this guy, for good reason, he was locked up for life um, because he needed to be. In 2010, they passed the Fair Sentencing Act where they raised the threshold on crack cocaine to trigger the mandatories, the sentencing, and made it more on par with powder cocaine. I'm not going to get into that now, but it was prospective. One of the provisions of the First Step Act, Section 404, one of the many, many avenues of retroactive early release in the bill was to retroactively apply the leniency in crack cocaine, and that triggered this guy who was convicted in 2005 before the act of 2010 but the first step act of 2018 retroactively let him out he was let out well in july he was arrested for breaking into his girlfriend's home caught with a knife didn't serve time in jail wasn't sent back why because you can't lock up anyone anymore well just last week last wednesday um he is accused of stabbing someone to death in a nightclub of some sort of bar in providence rhode island but he's a fugitive, so there is an arrest warrant out for him, but he's not there. I would have never known about this if not for the Providence Journal, but it really it was a Senate office that tipped me off, and they only knew about it because this reporter for the Providence Journal contacted them um, to get a statement. You know, hey, like, what do you think of this? We would never know. And how many more? There have been 1,691 people released just under this provision, roughly 3,000 as of July released total so far. And this is before the main jailbreak applying to tens of thousands of people kicks into high gear. And then there's the prospective reduction in sentencing, which we didn't even get to, but these are all the retroactive provisions. These are the worst human beings being let out, but you will never hear about it because there's no accountability. There was an, an amendment that Tom Cotton and Senator John Kennedy, and I'm sorry for speaking so quickly, I want to get to our guest, um, that was offered at the time to simply say, look, you get your jailbreak, but just one amendment. We're all, you're all saying that, oh, we're correcting recidivism, we have great programs, and you'll see they won't recidivate, we're going to stop the recidivism problem, we'll, we'll rehabilitate them. So wouldn't you want to know if they re, you know, recidivate? I'm saying, wouldn't, wouldn't you want to track this, right? I mean, isn't that the whole point? So he said, all right. So his amendment said, Every quarter, Congress should get a report from the Bureau of Prisons, who was released, what was their rap sheet, and how many, if any, re were rearrested for crimes. 17 Republicans, including Mike Lee, 
joined every Democrat in defeating that amendment because they didn't want accountability. They didn't want us to know. We're going to talk a lot more about this, but I wanted you guys to know about it. We spent a great deal of time on this last year. I fought this bill for four years. It's one of my proudest moments of my career. I'll never back down on this issue. And it is truly immoral what is going on. And again, I am sure there are numerous other people like this, if not, you know, have committed murder, rape, robbery, who knows what else. And you'll never know that they were among those released under this bill. And I, I have limited capacity to research this and find it out. But thank God I found out about this case. All right, let's move on to Syria. So Syria. Um, folks, this is a naughty issue. As we noted so many times with Iran, with Afghanistan, there is a problem. There is no vision of what it means to be a conservative on foreign policy, especially juxtaposed to homeland security, national security. What is in our interest? What are the proper, proper tools to address it? What's not in our interest? What's not the proper tools? Obviously, that discussion doesn't lend itself to yay or nay, black and white. Um, Everyone is intellectually dishonest on this issue. It's unbelievable. People are all over the place. People who opposed being involved in Syria, uh, now they change their opinion because Trump now, now he's opposed because they hate Trump. Those who are on the other side but love Trump, they're realigning themselves. It's all over the place. For the record, I want to put up on the screen right here um, my op-ed on September and September of 2013 where I said, let Allah sort out the Syrian Islamic civil war. It was an op-ed I wrote for foxnews.com. My opinion has never changed. I, I believe not only did we not have a vested interest, not only did we have our soldiers endangered, I believe that we actually helped Iran um, by us being the basic free cleansing service of the Sunni insurgency for them. But with that said, multiple things are true at the same time. Erdogan is still a problem, but he is a problem for slightly different reasons than everyone's talking about. He's a problem because he's the Muslim Brotherhood leader. He's a problem because he's funding the Muslim Brotherhood and mosques and subversion on our soil. We need to counter him. We need to be tough on him. Trump has made some mistakes, some of it real some of it more his just discombobulated perception problems with some of his statements and allegations of his ties to erdogan with businesses that he appears weak on erdogan as a result it's allowing the democrats the media and all these establishment republican foreign policy people to say hey your pullout from syria is being weak on erdogan and you're in erdogan's back pocket so erdogan is important but and, and he needs to be countered in the right way. But us remaining in Syria doesn't help counter him. It doesn't speak to the problems and it creates a bigger problem. That is my view. But I wanted you to get, guys to get an expert view of someone who's obviously spent a tremendous amount of time in the theater um, in Iraq. CENCOM, working for CENCOM, no stranger to this show. Colonel Dan Steiner, three decades of service in the Air Force. Um, very, which by the way, we really do want to discuss air issues today. Cause that's, you know, we're talking about ground troops, but a lot of this often gets back to airspace and there's a lot of news on that front. So I figured, look, rather than me giving a whole nother show on this, 
I want you guys to hear a real thoughtful opinion. I know I get so many, so much feedback from you guys like, man, I never thought about that before. I've learned so much from Colonel Dan. Well, here he is. Colonel Dan, thanks so much for joining us again today. Hey, Dan, how you been? It's been frustrating. I mean, th th there's no conservative vision on anything. I mean, if Trump tomorrow would support letting out every criminal, conservatives who oppose it, they're all like, yeah, yeah, great idea. And vice versa, Democrat, no one has any vision, and we're certainly seeing this on foreign policy. Do you share my concern that on the one hand, we have long said we shouldn't get involved? I Look, I'm very transparent. My op-ed in Fox News, September 2013, and I've been consistent until then, we have no place in refereeing that Islamic civil war, so I should be embracing what Trump is doing but I do have some some concerns about his posture. And I want before you respond, I just want to preface for our audience. On the one hand, Trump has been um, saying some tough things like, oh, if Erdogan ever gets back there, let me tell you, I'm going to go and you know economically crush him. But on the other hand, he tweeted out really a couple minutes ago. So many people conveniently forget that Turkey is a big trading partner of the United States. In fact, they make the structural steel frame for our F-35 fighter jet. They have, uh, they have been good to deal with, helping me save many lives at, in, at Idlib province and returning in very good health at my request, Pastor Brunson, who had many years at, been in long prison term remaining. Also remember, and importantly, that Turkey is an important member in good standing of NATO. He is coming to the U.S. as my guest. Uh, on, on November 13th. Okay, Colonel, I agree with Trump pulling out of Syria in a vacuum. But what I don't, what, what I agree is that Erdogan is, is an Islamo Nazi, as Mark Levin calls them. He is the chief Muslim Brotherhood leader of the world. I believe he is a bigger threat than ISIS because ISIS can't really, doesn't have the infrastructure to fund subversion on our soil. The Muslim Brotherhood does. And he is, um, folks, I'm going to put up on the screen right here a picture on Facebook you'll see of Niyad Awad and other care officials, this woman m sitting with Erdogan at the groundbreaking of the largest mosque in North America in Lanham, Maryland, Prince George's County in 2016. That is the problem. This is a guy I'd arrest on our soil. What the hell? I mean, th this is the frustration I have. Take it from there. Well, it, you know, it's, it's interesting how I watched the reaction to Trump's announcement. I was reading something about Hong Kong uh, a couple days ago in the morning when you texted me and said, hey, are you following this, this Turkish thing? And I was actually pretty deep, deep down a well with two friends of mine looking at the Hong Kong issue update. And so I went and looked at it and I saw what the president said. You know, my first reaction was great. I think I told you, I said great move. Absolutely great move. And, and, and Dan, before we get down a couple rabbit holes here, let me make a comment to your audience that I've made to you a couple times. If we get out of northern Syria, we force the exposure of this fake bromance between the Turks and the Russians and the Iranians. Now, for the last two days, all I've heard on all the mainstream media, not from you or your folks, but from the mainstream media, has been this ridiculous stance that, oh, if we leave northern Syria, 
ISIS is going to come back. That was the first big thing I've heard, you know, some of the folks in D.C. say. And then I heard this argument about, oh, well, you know, we're betraying the Kurds and our allies can't trust us anymore. Well, in order to, in order for the neocons to set up their stance about always wanting to stay somewhere forever, they, they have to have a premise as to why they do that. And the premise is, is that there's, there's huge alliance between the Iranians and the Syrians and the Russians and the Turks. There's none of that. And you've heard me say this before. The minute I heard Trump make his announcement, I thought, okay, now the pressure's on. And you remember what I told you I was going to do? do. I went and I watched Moscow. And I wouldn't watch Sputnik because that's that's Putin's, the czar's mouthpiece. <laughs> the very first thing the Russians said officially after Trump's statement was, everybody needs to stay out of Syria. Well, excluding the Russians because they were invited. You know, they've, they've always been invited. They were invited to Eastern Europe. They've been invited everywhere they ever went. But that tells you, Dan, that what Trump did bothered them. Now, now, so why is it D.C. sitting there saying, great move, Mr. President, like I did? I told you. I said, well, wait, for, freeze move. frame. Well I, I want to frame, frame for people. Everyone's saying, oh, my gosh, you're ceding Syria to the Russians. So the Russians should be elated, right? Well, we're seceding the Russians. You know, I heard several different versions of this hysteria. ISIS is coming back. The Iranians are going to take Syria. The Russians are taking Syria, you know. Erdogan's expanding his power in the region. All of these reasons, they're, they're just grasping at straws to try and justify keeping a presence in northern Syria. There is no pretense to stay in northern Syria, Dan. There's none. There's absolutely none. No. It, whatever footprint we think we need on the ground there to conduct operations, we can do from anywhere. And we've known that since day one. So Trump could have came out three days ago and said anything. And you know the reaction. The reaction is, oh, no, look what Trump did now. And it's so funny. Getting out of northern Syria is such a logical statement. I waited to see who went after him on it. And, of course, it was all the dim Republicans. You know, there's no Mitt Romney, Marco Rubio, Nikki Haley. And, and, and I listened to Grant. No, by, by the way, I just want I just want you to know and other people to know. Marco Rubio signed on a letter demanding more Middle Eastern refugees. So I guess we <laughs> invade them and invite them. I mean, it's yeah. mentally ill. Like, I'm just saying, if you feel that there's some strategic interest in being there, then by a factor of a million, and, and they invoked 9-11 too, by a factor of a million, we should um, absolutely... Uh, not take any of them as as immigrants and absolutely if, if if erdogan is hitler which i'm i'm and i'm not saying that sarcastic i'm very proud and happy that the rhinos the democrats and the media suddenly think erdogan's such a bad guy i wish they would have recognized that under obama when he was attending a groundbreaking of the mosque uh funded by the muslim brotherhood and and, and his government on our soil in my home state of maryland then like if we're at war with mussolini are we going to have him fund churches on American soil? I mean, you better believe we weren't doing that. Are we going to take immigrants from there? No. So then, but no, they're not, they're, 
they don't seem to care about that. When the 9-11 Commission, and I'm going to have this in my article today, wrote on page six of the report that at the end of the day, terrorists can't get in here if we don't allow them in through immigration. And immigration needs to be a cornerstone. That was the word they used. It needs to be a cornerstone of national security. But none of our agencies view it as such. And that's what bothers me. It's like, I'm a hawk. No, you're not a hawk. You're a dove. I'm a hawk. Um, so I, I understand the criticism of them. And, 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 it, and it's ridiculous. But could you assure our audience in terms of Trump Okay, so you pull out, but what they're concerned about is he seems to be a little bit too close with Erdogan than he should be, and they're now signaling their attack. So what does happen? They're going to go and slaughter the Kurds, right? What would you say to that? Well, so, so Dan, here's the deal, and I, and I told you when you and I were talking before, I, there, there's two possibilities as to how this came around with Trump. One, he sat down with his commanders, probably not the IC, because. He's not having a great relationship with a politically charged IC down. That that just infuriates me. And nothing has endangered this nation more yep. than to have politicians in D.C. turn the IC into a political tool. We, we are in dire trouble for doing that. That's a, a different topic. But he either sat down with his commanders and they said to him, hey, sir, if you really want to say you're getting out of here, here's how we do this. Did you notice yesterday that after everybody went after Trump and screamed and hollered about you're betraying our allies, somehow the Kurds became an ally? It's like saying John Gotti's an ally. And all of this stuff went on. Then the story came out from the Kurds side of it. I think I sent you that Kurdish reporter's tweet. The Kurds came back and they were mad because we kicked them out of the Joint Air Operations Center, which is a fancy place to say that's where all the deconfliction for air operations goes. Well, you kick them out of there because all the maps in there show you where the Kurd positions are. Plus, it shows you where we are, you know, our 10, 15 man cells, whatever the mystical number is over there. But we kicked them out of that coordination cell. Well, that's huge. And that tells me that Trump really sat down with somebody and said, this is what I want to do. How do you guys make it happen? And it happened. No credit. NBC, CNN, MSNBC, no credit anywhere to Trump for that part of the plan. But, but now, what, that would have been what does that mean? Really that that we would enforce like a no-fly zone against them, or are you saying something else? No. So what we're well, we can do two things. I heard both stories yesterday. We told the Turks, "Hey, we need a little bit of time to get our guys and our equipment out of there." Now you're automatically running stories about how you're going to imminently attack. First off, don't fly anywhere we've still got people on the ground. It's not going to go well for you. And, and so that was kind of behind the curtain discussion with the Turks, because they are a NATO ally. So they, they very smartly kept that behind the curtain, except the Turks leaked it. The Turkish press was like, well, now the United States is saying we better not fly where their forces are. And, and so the Turks were mad that they didn't get this all their way. Again, an indication that Trump put this together. This just it was it wasn't one of his epiphanies at two o'clock in the morning, <laughs> and he started tweeting stuff out. That's not what this is, because we couldn't have done those other things that quickly. This was thought out. Now, does it go back to his core value of I'm sick and tired of these little hot spot whack-a-mole is what I call them. Yeah. 
operations. He is. He's tired of them. How much money does northern Syria cost us? Well, don't do the money. Don't do the figures based upon 100 bodies on the ground. It's everything else. And I got to tell you, it's a lot of money. It's a ton of money. And in the end of the day, Dan, what we're doing in northern Syria, for better or for worse, in my opinion, is we're allowing the Russians and the Turks to look like they're friends. They got a bromance going. You know, the Sultan and the Tsar are holding hands and taking pictures. If we get out of there, we force the issue that I know has been there since day one. The Turks don't want the Russians to make decisions about Syria, and the Russians don't want the Turks making decisions. And oh, by the way, the third wacky member of the Three Stooges, the Iranians, they don't want either of them making decisions. Let that stuff boil. Colonel, to put a finer point, a specific point on what you're saying how it will boil over and why it wasn't boiling over because we were serving almost as the as the band-aid for all of the people that the neocons say we need to be there for um exactly. is it the reality this that basically and, and it's more complicated than this but let's just say there's the shiite axis and the sunni axis it's more complicated but so you got Obviously, Iran is the Shiites. You got the Alawites there, the demographics in many parts around Damascus that are that are Shiite. And Assad is Shiite. He represents them. Um, he is the puppet of Iran. Iran has IRGC fighting there, and they also have Shiite Hezbollah fighting for Assad for the Shiites. Okay, like anywhere where you have Shiites rampaging, especially from out of area, it's going to tick off the Sunnis just like it did and continues to do so in Iraq today. You always have the rubber band effect. That's why I hate calling it ISIS. I like calling it the perpetual Sunni insurgency. It was Al-Qaeda in Iraq. It's ISIS. Now it's going to be something else. There's a group called Ahar al-Sham. There's always going to be groups. But it, I don't like talking about that because you could destroy groups like a like a game of risk, you know, pieces on a board, but you can't destroy the constituencies that represent them unless you're just going to kill everyone there. So so they're always going to fight back against them. So isn't it true that and then, OK, so the Russians are backing the Shiite alliance, but like you always say, not because they really are in with them and they have issues with them, too, but for their strategic interest they want Assad so therefore they're going to be more with the Shiite alliance but then you yeah, got Turkey yes yeah. but then you got Turkey with Erdogan and Turkey which has been at war practically with Assad forever they're Sunni and they've been propping up ISIS and some of these other um non-ISIS rebels Syrian rebels Sunni rebels against Assad we go in there and we're like We'll go and hold down, you know, the Sunnis for you. So then Russia's like, all right, we don't have a problem with the Sunni insurgency. Iran's like, we don't have a problem with it. So they're all happy. Um, Turkey plays a double game there. But now if we if we pull out and the Sunnis rampage, they're like, everyone's like, ISIS will come back. Well, guess what? Let's say that's true. Guess whose problem it is now? Russia and Iran. So Turkey's going to be in trouble with with Putin. No. Well, yeah, and, and, and so there's my point. It, the president, either knowingly or unknowingly, has created an opportunity to expose the rift that truly does exist between the Ottomans and the Russians. And over in the corner are the Persians. And, and, and the pictures they always put up is there's this happy 
union party going on between Persians, Ottomans, and Russians all the time. It's complete BS. But it's a great way to sell by the neocons. Hey, look, look at this triad over here. We got to really be careful because we're, we're really, we got to defend ourselves against this. There, there's no triad. As soon as Trump put that message out, the Russians reacted. Hey, everybody needs to stay out of Syria. Well, that message was to Tehran and it was to Ankara because they said we said we were leaving. Now, here's another funny point, Dan. Are we leaving? Hell no, we're not leaving. <laughs> if there's people in that country we think we got to go kill, we'll go kill them. And if we have to say we're somewhere else, we'll say we're somewhere else. That's how the game is played. But what I think is brilliant on Trump's part, if he listened to somebody or if he came up with himself or now he has to catch it, you've created a rift with the Russians and the Turks. The Russians want to pull the Turks out of NATO. They want to neutralize the effectiveness of NATO. They want to pull Turkey out of that Western influence because NATO went too deep into Eastern Europe and the Russians are never... Everything they do revolves around that. Erdogan sees the new Ottoman Empire as the rulers of the Muslim faith. He's going to use the Muslim Brotherhood. He's going to use his influence with his proxy fighters like the Muslim Brotherhood. And the center of the Muslim faith will be in the Ottoman Empire. He's a nutcase. Go look. At, I put on my blog yesterday. Go look at the palace he built in 2014. As soon as he got elected... He built a palace that looks like something out of the Ottoman Empire era. He took all the palace military guys and he put them in the most stupid looking uniforms. I mean, I'd be embarrassed to be seen in one of those things. The guy's a nutcase. And Putin plays him like a violin. But now we expose that fake romance that's going on there. That was a brilliant move. But yet I hear everybody in DC saying, oh, Trump's a disaster. Trump did this wrong. And Dan, here's the one I want to talk about real quick. I get tired of this. We've just, we've we've destroyed our alliance with the Kurds. We've yes. betrayed the Kurds. Well, let's go back and do a little history lesson. What happened to the Kurds after they helped us in Desert Storm? We walked away. Dan, I was there. And, and we those were the Iraqi Kurds. I want to make very clear, they're very different. The, you know, we're talking about the PKK in Syria. They're Marxists. Um, they have reached out to Iran, ironically. There is a little bit, meaning uh, people forget that a big part of why we were in bed with the Syrian Kurds is part of, was part of Obama's broad realignment towards Iran. Um, they were, you know, so they're very different. I don't mean to cut you off there, but you're talking about even what should be our closer ally, the Erbil Iraq-based um, Barzani government, whatever you know, whatever you want to call it, the Iraqi Kurds, right? Well, well, and here's the bottom line about the Kurds: they're, they're kind of like the Irish in a pub. If they're not fighting somebody else, they're fighting each other. I mean, and that's just the simple fact of the matter. They love to fight. They're very good fighters. It's the reason we asked them to come fight ISIS. Why have U.S. soldiers killed on the ground if you can get Kurdish guys to fight them? If they were effective. The Iraqi army was a disaster. Yeah. They rolled on Baghdad, and they were going to take Baghdad. When you put the pressure on them from the north by us bringing the Kurds sure. into the game, 
We promised them three things. We promised them money. First and foremost, the Kurds go for money. If you want to know what the Kurds are, think of the gypsies. You know, don't, talk, don't talk about this section of Kurds or that section. The Kurds are gypsies. If there's money to be made, if they can get newer guns because they love guns, you're given a gun at like three years old. If you can give them new guns and new weapons and money and give them somebody to shoot at, they're happy. That's what we used them for. Yeah. We used a section of them in Desert Storm. We used a section of them in Syria. That's what they do. What alliance we're talking about. I have, like I said, it's like saying you betrayed your alliance with John Gotti. It's ridiculous to think of an alliance with the Kurds. They yeah. used us. We used them. Trump changed his mind. So what? This, this big blow up of, oh, Trump's walked away from an ally. Well, we let Saddam gas him at the end of Desert well, Storm. Well, I mean, but to be fair, the, the people promulgating that thought will tell you that, yeah, that was a mistake. And now's the time to not double down on that. I'm just that's what I'll say. So so here's what I think is going to happen, Dan. And I, and I know this one's going to trip your trigger. I think the happy compromise here is we're going to see this massive influx of Kurdish refugees. You know, everybody driving a cab in Chicago a year from now will be a Kurd. But they're, they're, they're bandits and they're fighters. They're warriors. They're Klingons. So they're going to come to the United States and they're not going to be happy with a desk job. They're never going to be that way. They're going to come here and you're going to have like a Kurdish mafia, you know, run around the inner cities somewhere. It's like the, it's like the, the Romanians. It's just it's so, so are you are you saying this? I want you to leave nothing behind here. Say it all. Um, I until fairly recently, I romanticized about the Kurds. I wanted to subscribe to this view that we have this, you know, pro um, that there that there exists this pro Western, pro American put together even muslim they are muslim um group of people that could be a bulwark against turkey a or erdogan a bulwark against iran a bulwark against the shiites in in baghdad and we'll if we just give them a little bit of money and support their independence let's just talk about the iraqis for now syrians for sure a bunch of commies um They'll live happily ever after. But what I've come to learn from studying this in in recent years is that, and I think that's what you're hinting to, they got a lot of internal problems. There is no unity. There's a lot of corruption. Um, there's the Barzani and Talibani factions. Um, it's not that simple. Now, some suggest had we backed them in the past, we could have steered them in the right direction. Whether that's true or not, I don't see there's much of a play we can make now. But but I do want you to answer that in terms of, at the end of the day, what happens if Turkey launches an all-out assault? What should we and should we not do? Okay, let, let's let's go down, and I'm glad you brought that. Let's let's go down this path. There there is a struggling relationship between the Sultan and the Czar. There just is, but there's a relationship. So I I want you to believe me when I tell you that. As soon as it was hinted that we truly are going to leave, kind of like we were going to leave, you know, last year, the agreement has always been between Erdogan and Putin. Look, 
I'm getting my butt handed to me in Turkey by my civilian population. You know, I lost my capital's election because people were mad about all these mass migration issues I've got. The issue of the Kurds is a, is a, a time-told sore in Turkey. I'll go into Syria. I'll do some stuff. I'll make it look good. I'll get my people to wave the Turkish flag. We'll, so, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll show some Turkish soldiers raising the Turkish flag somewhere. They already did that yesterday, by the way. And when it's all said and done, I'll get back out. And if you can get the Kurds to work for you, because the Kurds work for money. So at the end of the day, if you can get the Kurds to go work for Putin. Which they already kind of are. There's already a relationship so, there. This is a show. See, see wait, wait a minute. Uh, Colonel, t- tell me something. We're like, so they're going to go slaughter the Kurds. And oh my gosh, we're empowering Russia, but we're empowering Turkey. But well, wait a minute. They can't all be true. The way I view this is, you know, you have a septic tank of snakes, scorpions, sharks, and killer whales all in there fighting each other. And even that's not a perfect analogy because it's more than that. Each one is backed really by a constituency, uh, an inveterate tribal population. So it's even stronger than what I'm making out to be. Until now, our policy has been dive headfirst into the tank and at any given moment, pick an enemy. All right, sharks. Well, it's whack-a-mole, right? A, you're going to get bitten by all sorts of things and you're going to, you know, whatever. And then rather than what we should be doing, it's not isolationism. It's standing outside the perimeter. Defining a perimeter of strategic interests and then saying that anything, whether it's a shark, a killer whale or a snake comes out and gets too close to those interests, I'll zap that. But I'm not going to go and try to solve what's in the septic tank, what's in the dumpster fire. And that's how I always view the Israelis. When's the last time they lost a soldier uh, offering electricity and water in Raqqa or the foreign land? Never. Because, and, even, and even though they're right there, right on the doorstep, they'll stand back and anyone, if it's al-Qaeda getting a little close, if it's Nusra, if it's Hezbollah, um, in the in the Syrian Golan there, if it's Assad's forces, if it's the IRGC, it depends on the situation. But they're not like, I'm going to war against ISIS. I mean, I, I always I found it amazing. ISIS was traipsing around with these nerdy videos, you know, with the beheadings and uh, people in our country. Are like, Oh, my gosh, we got to do something. And they were conflating gruesome evilness with a strategic threat. Now, picture Israel being right miles away from those beheadings. You would think they would send the IDF in there and Aka and we have to defeat ISIS. They didn't do that. And, and if anything, they were more involved with hitting the IRGC, the Iranian forces. So I, try, I commend Trump for recognizing don't dive head first into that. But there is the second half of, OK, then we step back properly guard our strategic interests that's where i'm a little concerned that i don't know if trump is getting the right advice how to do that well right so you know my point when we started talking was this was a pretty good move on trump's part because we forced this issue of a bromance so what the bromance did is it it made promises to each other 
hey, I'll yeah. go in for a little while. I'll get the Turkish people happy, and then I'll get back out. Now, if the Kurds end up running to you, that's great. Uh, the Russians are like, hey, you, you can go in, but you can't stay. Well, what happens if you go after the Kurds and it doesn't work? You know, the Kurds are fighters. And oh, by the way, if we're doing statecraft at the level that we used to do statecraft, the things we leave behind for the Kurds, and when the Turkish units come in and the Kurds bloody their nose in two or three areas, they're, they're, they are excellent hit-and-run hit and guerrillas. Yeah. They just are. They're extremely good. I mean, their attack cells are based upon bloodlines. And so they suicide. They do suicide attacks, the best too. Shot of the group. My cousin's the best shot. My uncle's the best bomb maker. That's why they were so formidable against all the nutcases over in ISIS. If the Turks promised the Russians we're going to get in and get out, because you notice the Syrian military pulled out yesterday. Well, who did that? Moscow did. Not a, not the eye doctor. <laughs> he, you know, he's just sitting over there playing Gears of War or something <laughs> on a laptop. The Russians cut that deal with the Turks. You go in there, you make yourself look for look good for a little while, and then get back out, and we'll calm this down. But we forced that. Trump forced that to actually come to fruition. Now you got to make it really work. That's brilliant, because it's not going to work. And so you create that friction between these two. You got one guy trying to pull NATO apart. You got a nutcase over here in Turkey that the people are getting tired of. If he gets a bunch of soldiers killed fighting the Kurds for the next six months, Dan, in northern Iraq, remember when Hezbollah first went into Syria, all the northern families in Lebanon were like, why the hell are my kids going into Syria? Our job is to stay here and defend against Israel. Why are, why are we sending Hezbollah body bags back to Lebanon from the northern Bekaa Valley kids because the Southern Bekaa Valley families are figuring out we're going to go to Syria because Iran wants to go to Syria. And that created all kinds of tensions inside Hezbollah. It screwed Hezbollah up for a year and a half. Yeah. That same thing can happen with this bromance between the Russians and the Turks. And over in the corner, watching it all happen, hoping it all falls apart on the Mullahs. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I remember reading at the time two, three, four years ago. Hezbollah really, they got, they really took heavy casualties from ISIS. From ISIS and Nusra. I think Nusra too, the other Sunni group there. And I'm like, like, this is what bothered me. I was like, Daniel, we got to defeat ISIS. I'm like, but what do you do if really bad Sunnis are fighting really bad Shiites? My view is, Make it as 50-50 as you can. It's not being hawkish on one is being dovish on the other. You have to look at the whole picture and say, hey, how are we going to get our enemies at their throats the most, strengthen our position, but most importantly, define our strategic interests? So again, I but 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 you know, you know, Dan, I, I deal mainly with domestic policy. And I see the same problem with domestic policy. Trump will finally get what none of the Teletubbies get and he'll pursue a policy many of us have been calling for for many years. But damn, he he doesn't have the accompanying accoutrements that need to come with it and the proper messaging. That's what always concerns us. 
Dan, I made this comment to you yesterday, and let's bring it up. Um, when Trump made his comment about, I'm going to go to D.C. and drain the swamp, he did not realize he was in the swamp. The, the fact that the senior leadership of the Department of Justice and the IC is in the swamp is just terrifying. He never anticipated that. He's a patriot. He really thought he'd get up there and the guys and girls that he could lean on to help clean the swamp out were in the swamp. And, and, and it's that's a terrible yeah. scenario for us. It, it really it's the reason D.C. has the nation paralyzed right now. We, we because are, what we do you do paralyzed. if you're a president and you make the decision? He's the commander in chief. We all agree. Foreign policy. You know, he has the full authority. And the Pentagon starts leaking stories to the Washington Post about how it was chaotic and they weren't told about it. And, you know, they don't want to pull out of Syria. They don't want to pull out of Afghanistan. I mean, that's like a banana republic. I mean, if you want to defeat him, defeat him in election, get in a different government. But what you can't do is you elect someone and you have this unelected, you know, fourth branch of government just doing what it wants. Oh, absolutely. And as a commander in chief, the theater commanders, he, he has total authority to call directly to a theater commander. Remember what I told you when it was everybody in D.C. had Trump attack Iran, attack Iran, attack Iran, attack Iran. And then Trump goes, OK, it looks like we've got to do something against Iran. And then at the last second, he stopped. And then everybody in D.C. was Trump doesn't know what he's doing. Trump pulled the plug. You know, all the neocons were incensed because we didn't go ahead and do it. I guarantee it's because he finally talked to the CENTCOM commander and the CENTCOM commander said, sir, Iran's ready to go to war. They're ready to go to war, not launch three missiles against uh, Aramco, not send mortars into Israel from Gaza. They're ready to go to war if that happens. And Trump probably sat there and said, why the hell didn't any of you tell me what that guy over there in CENTCOM is telling me? And so this is the world he has to live in right now. Yeah. He did not anticipate the depth and the membership of the swamp. So I, I want to you, you brought something up and I, I want to close with this. I want to tie together what we've discussed in our previous episodes together, the air assets versus being precariously flung out in the ground and, and tying in what should be what I believe another ancillary benefit of this pullout, which is Syria doesn't affect us. Iran does. Um, I've I've long been a believer, as you well know, Sunni jihad is all immigration. <laughs> okay, it's all immigration. It's the Muslim Brotherhood on our soil. That's the FBI. That's Homeland Security. It has nothing to do with military. There's no Sunni nation state that is um, threatening us. Iran, on the other hand, is a nation state, as well as also threatening us in terms of the Persian Gulf, uh, Straits of Hormuz, and the shipping lanes. So... When it comes to them, that's really where we need to conserve our military deterrent. The irony of some of the neocons is they also claim to be tough on Iran. But part of the reason why Trump has held back and has been, you know, advised against taking a more aggressive posture against what does affect us in the Persian Gulf with Iran directly is because they're going to attack our assets in Syria and Iraq. I want to read to you something, get your comment on it, being an airman. Um, and and understanding just tactics. One of the things I wrote, this was back in January of this year. Um, it's titled A Holistic Approach to the Middle East International Security. And what I noted at the time is 
I was talking about how two more troops were two troops were killed in Manja, Mambij, Syria, far northwest corner, far away from where the Kurds are. They were somehow there. Now, what were the circumstances of their death? And what I wrote here was so it was two um, people in a, a Department of Defense civilian uh, contractor were killed. Um, and basically, I wrote this. The details of the attack are important to understanding the strategic mistake we have made there since the Obama administration and why it's the worst of all worlds, both for the safety of our troops and for any hope of a positive outcome. According to NBC, quote, forces were on foot in the city, on foot in the city, when they were approached around 1 p.m. local time by a man wearing civilian clothing with explosives hidden underneath. What was the environment like? Quote, the blast happened in a market area of small alleys that is crowded with shops and street vendors, unquote. And, and basically my commentary on that was we could have the strongest military in the world, but there is no way we can send isolated units into these types of cities on foot patrol and leave them there indefinitely without any defensive lines or strategic offensive vision while any suicide bomber dressed as a civilian can attack them. This isn't war. This is a social work operation in a war zone. The worst combination of all. I want to get your strategic thoughts on that. If if you have two troops walking by themselves away from any type of immediate support somewhere, they better be soft. They better be special operators. They better be part of a plan to where you can bring fire to bear if something goes wrong with them. That's the only way you play a game where you let people start going out in twosies into towns. Dan, in, in my 20 years as an operational commander, 16 years of that, I was in direct command. And I will tell you that in any part of this world, in, including all the parts of what you're talking about, I never allowed any unit to go outside where I could defend them if needed to do anything. I, I didn't need to go snooping around in town to find out what's going on in the town. I could go to the bazaar where they sell all the trinkets and crap to the U.S. forces at the main operation base or the FOB and find out everything I need to know about that town. It, it's ridiculous to let our people get killed and maimed because that's the more exciting way, the more Hollywood way to fight our enemies. You fight our enemies in a way that they can't respond. That's the You and I have talked about this before. Boots on the ground in northern Syria is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And if you tell me they're training people, well, hold on. Who are we training? Kurds? They've been learning how to shoot since they were three years old. <laughs> They've been fighting since they were five years old. If they were in the United States Army, they'd have 400 ribbons hanging off their mess dress uniform. What are we doing? Are we just over there playing around just to play around? And why do the neocons get so upset when Trump makes the right move 
and starts to shut that stuff down. This it, is just, what bothers me, Colonel, that they don't say what we should be doing. Notice I criticize Obama, but I always didn't. I never did it on the cheap. I said, here's what I would be doing. Same thing with Trump. Sometimes I'll tweak him. I'll say, good idea, but there's accompanying problems that you had. But don't pull out. Don't pull out of Afghanistan. Don't pull out of Somalia. Don't pull out of that. Okay, okay, fine. What the blank is it we are doing? But what they do is they romanticize this picture of like, I'm a hawk. We're fighting terrorists. Well, I'm a hawk too. I love killing bad guys. I mean, I'm all for that. But the picture I wanted to paint for you in our audience, that's not what it looks like. And that's what they're not being honest. The type of deployments we've had there. And by the way, I could confirm for you in that case, they were not special forces. Um, it was conventional. One of them was a was a female. I think she was even a mother. Um, she was like an encoder, um, uh, maybe in, working in intelligence, encryption, um, it wasn't uh it was it was conventional units um i don't think it was marines either i think it was it was just regular u.s army that was also a and they probably had no town restrictions on that's a command yeah issue there that but this happens every day not so often now in syria i mean i haven't heard that that was in january this is what's happening in afghanistan every day um i'm all for beating this not out of bad guys but what we've been doing in the Middle East, and this gets back to Mogadishu in 93, is we've sent isolated people precariously without any offensive vision, but also not behind strategic defensive lines or not always behind them, going into something where I don't know who's going to jump out at me. But on the other hand, like offensive vision is you come in there, you know, just shoot up everything. But we don't do that. We don't want to do that. Everyone's a civilian, right? So then what are you going to do? I'm saying, even if you have special forces, I mean, if you have a town of a thousand people there in a narrow alleys and marketplaces with civilians, how could you stop? I mean, you could be, they could all be Chuck Norris, but it doesn't matter. If you're wearing a suicide vest, you're done. I, th this is what's so unfair. Until you have an answer to that, you're you have no moral authority to send troops there. Closing well, words. No, they're, they're, no. and and, I, and you you and I have had this conversation about as a nation, the West is doing this, but as a nation, we're we're leading the charge on this. Well, Europe's probably ahead of us, but we we have an aversion. To casualties. We have an aversion to our casualties and we have an aversion to civilian casualties. We continuously try and figure out how to conduct warfare operations in an environment to where we don't produce casualties. You're probably too young to remember this, but we went through this nutty conversation back in the late 70s about this thing called the neutron bomb. I think it was in Carter's years. I, I, Anyway, we were, we were designing this bomb for our war in Europe with the Russians that would kill the people, but leave all the structures and everything else okay. No fallout, you know, it's virtually, you can go back into town four days later and you're good to go. You get, you get rid of the humans, you keep the town. And everybody went nuts. You know, you're, you're trying to humanize warfare. Warfare has to stay ugly. It has to be yeah. the thing that you avoid at all cost. That's what you need to be able to do. 
Well, here it is, 2019, and we know four guys are in a room in some godforsaken hellhole in the, in the stands or in the Middle East, and the mission is go get the $75 million uh, weapon on a $90 million weapons platform, fly over there, make sure the weapon only goes through the right window, kills the four guys in the room, but doesn't disturb the apple cart guy out on the street. And oh, by the way, I want confirmation that that's going to go right. So I need SF guys on the ground to confirm the target. And, and it's it's four knuckleheads that might on a good day, someday rob somebody. And, and, and so we have this aversion to doing things. Now, I call that, and you've heard me say it, I call that Captain Kirk with his gun on stun. You know, on Star Trek, you don't want to hurt anybody. First prime director of the Federation is, you can't interfere, you can't kill anybody. And then along come the Klingons. Well, here come the Russians in Syria. You want to get down to the brass tacks ugliness? If ISIS is defeated, the Russians are the ones that bloodied them. When they finally showed up, they didn't go for a $500,000 bomb on a $90 million aircraft. They went and got war stock out of a dump, ammo dump, that was for the Cold War, World War III, and they said, bring the cheap crap, strap it on an aircraft, and bomb the whole damn town. They, they're hiding there somewhere, bomb the town. <laughs> and if someone says we killed some civilians, we're just going to deny it and keep going. That's the Klingons. Well, look at Aleppo. Look at the city of Aleppo. <laughs> That's how the Russians dealt with ISIS. We want to go in and spend $30 million and four SF guys' lives oh. to kill four knuckleheads in a room and not disturb the apple cart. We can never fight we a war. We can never that. fight a war. That, and, and that is what is so immoral for these people. If you believe it's important to have a ground operation, you have to articulate why, why it has to be done that way, what you're going to benefit from it, how you're not going to tip the balance to another enemy, um, what's your exit strategy, and what is your strategy for putting the lives of our soldiers first. Colonel, thanks so much for joining us. Um, we are way over time here, but this was definitely worth it. Bookmark this episode, listen to it over and over again. Sorry to tell you, I will be out tomorrow, but we'll be back on Thursday, same time, same place. Courts, immigration, crime, foreign policy, you name it. There's a lot going on. Make this your one-stop shop. Subscribe to our YouTube page at Conservative Review. Go to our uh, print content at conservativereview.com. Tweet me at Conservative and email me your comments, complaints, concerns, or questions for the colonel at dhorowitz at blazemedia.com. God bless and see you Thursday.